millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. The election is over, the nation has a new president, and a new chapter in history has begun. We don't know what lies ahead, but NPR will continue to bring you the best coverage from coast to coast to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the latest on desegregating the Cleveland Public Schools, a meeting is being held today on that issue. Our students are not able to uh, be provided access to 21st century resources and support. Our schools, our classrooms lack modern technology. You know, many of the classrooms you will find barely have uh, one working computer, and many of them don't have a set of working computers, and they definitely don't have one-to-one. Then, building a sustainable agricultural economy that brings fresh local produce to Mississippians. And exploring the music and culture of the Mojo Triangle in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Mississippi federal judge is meeting with Cleveland school district officials today to hear another proposal for desegregating the district. In May, U.S. District Court Judge Deborah Brown ordered the Cleveland school district to integrate its middle and high schools. The district has offered several plans that didn't meet desegregation guidelines. Sherry Shepard is an educator with Citizens in Favor of Consolidation. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the desegregation movement in Cleveland is headed in the right direction. Things have been tumultuous at times. There have been times where as the citizens and stakeholders in the Cleveland School District felt that their concerns and their input was not valued or recognized or encouraged, And uh, all of a sudden, we had a call meeting on Monday night prior to the regular school board meeting that was scheduled for 6 p.m. on the same evening, whereas the school board indicated that the purpose of the call meeting was the Cowan's case. So at that time, we were able to um, provide public comment regarding our thoughts and our feelings regarding the matter because it has been the... um, a position of the Citizens United for the Consolidation of the Public Schools in the Cleveland School District to implement effectively Judge Deborah Brown's May 13th order. So we expressed our concern regarding that to the school board, after which the school board retreated to an executive session, whereas after about an hour and a half, they came back indicating that they had made some decisions. However, those decisions would not be announced until um, the district made a 
press release, which would possibly take place within 24 to 48 hours. So we were sort of discouraged by that development as we had been over this three, four, five-month journey. And um, we waited in an effort to determine what the district was going to do. However, we didn't um, stop our efforts to prevent the board from implementing Judge Brown's plan by continuing with a petition that we had organized to require the three-mill tax increase to come to a vote. So we continued with the effort, and we had uh, thoroughly announced it within the community. We had organized, and we had divided the voter rolls into zones in which we had already begun the process of collecting the 20% of the signatures needed to force the effort to a vote. We felt that this was the only way that we as concerned stakeholders would get our voices heard in us expressing our displeasure with the board's decision to raise the taxes on the taxpayers when we already had facilities that we could use in the district to accomplish the same purpose in which they were trying trying to achieve. So you were against the three mil proposed tax increase? Certainly. We were against anything that was contrary to Judge Brown's May 13th order, and we felt that the three mil tax increase was directly opposed to doing what she had um, appended in her May 13th order. What did the order say in a nutshell? Brown's order called for the consolidation of schools with middle schools being housed on the Eastside High School campus and the high school being housed on the Cleveland High School campus. So grades 6 through 8 would be housed at Eastside, on the east side of the track, and grades 9 through 12 would be housed at Cleveland High, which would have been on the west side of the track. We felt that the plan that Judge Brown proposed honored the district's concern about a lack of revenue to build a school or to make substantial renovations to a school. And it utilized and respected the diversities of both sides of the track, and it really honored the wishes of the community to not give up their their school um, in favor of the implementation of any consolidation plan. What has been the response to that, to um, the May 13th order? Because you support it, but are there people against it? I'm sure there are. However, those people who have been opposed to Judge Brown's May 13th order hadn't materialized themselves to me. Um, You would find in the Cleveland community that many people are, they choose not to voice their opinion as to where they stand. So, you know, I've had very few people express an opinion contrary to what Judge Brown has indicated, but I'm quite sure there are some people who are there. We have some people who are very loyal to Eastside, and they want to maintain um, Eastside High School as it is. However, I'm loyal to providing 21st century educational opportunities for all students, and I feel that we needed to move forward and not duplicating what we had and uh, diluting our funds by maintaining two schools in which one could very well accomplish that same purpose. So do you, right now, do you see it as a waste of money, having the setup the way it is? Exactly. Our students are not able to uh, be provided access to 21st century resources and support. Our schools, our classrooms lack modern technology. Many schools are moving to a one-to-one initiative. We lack that 
at uh, Cleveland High School or Eastside High School. You know, many of the classrooms you will find barely have uh, one working computer, and many of them don't have a set of working computers, and they definitely don't have one-to-one. Many of our schools have Promethean boards. They have smart boards. They have iPads. They have most of the modern technology and resources and the supports to go with that. We're not able to do that effectively when we're trying to maintain and duplicate services at two separate schools when they very well could be accomplished in one. In addition to that, we've used millions of dollars in legal fees. That money could have gone toward building a new school. That money could have gone toward providing better resources and supports for our students. That money could have been gone toward improving our school system in Cleveland. However, yes, I do feel that it has been a waste of money to duplicate the resources in a community as small as Cleveland is and uh, to dilute our funds in that manner and to be wasteful of our funds by paying gobs of money to attorney fees for a matter that should have been settled 52 years ago. Do you know how much money has been spent on this? Well, it's been difficult getting um, any kind of information from the Cleveland School District as to the funding sources. Uh, We were able to obtain some information regarding the legal fees that were paid uh, the last year and the year prior to that, and uh, I have no way of verifying the accuracy of that information because any request that we've made at the Cleveland School District has been met with such resistance from the officials there. However, they have provided us some figures without any supporting documentation indicating that they spent almost a half a million dollars last year in legal fees. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Sherry Shepard of Citizens in favor of consolidation in Cleveland. School district officials will discuss the latest desegregation proposal in Greenville today with the judge and other parties in a conference call. Up next, building a sustainable agriculture economy that brings fresh local produce to Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Donald Trump has called climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese and has pledged to pull out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which is designed to reduce greenhouse gases. Now, more than 300 businesses are urging President-elect Trump to stick with the deal and move forward with investments in clean energy. The business case for action on climate change. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. The election is over. And the nation has selected a new president, and with it, a new chapter in history has begun. We don't know what lies ahead, but NPR will continue to bring you the best coverage from coast to coast. Listen every day. This week on MPB Season Pass, it's our basketball preview edition as Ben Howland from Mississippi State joins Jay White. Also, we speak with super senior Devin Schmidt from Delta State, and we'll talk to William Carey head basketball coach Steve Knight. And in the minutes, Jay and I will discuss whether freshman Shea Patterson can lead the Rebels to a bowl game. It's MPB Season Pass today at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is a rural state with agriculture as its leading industry, but most of that production is for commodity crops that feed cattle, poultry, and other animals. In fact, only 5% of the food produced in Mississippi is consumed here. 
That's according to the Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network. The mission of the network is to make sustainable farming and local food production thrive in the state. Starting today, the network is hosting a food summit to explore the moves necessary to make sustainable agriculture viable in Mississippi. We spoke with Daniel Doyle, executive director of the Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network. He says sustainable local food production is a real possibility in the state. Well, unfortunately, not enough food that we eat in Mississippi comes from within the state. And I think we're unique in the fact that we have the potential in Mississippi because of the year-round growing conditions, weather, water, and abundant fertile soil throughout the state that we could be producing the majority of the food that we eat. Um, Right now, it's closer to 90 to 95 percent, depending on where you live in Mississippi, that's being imported. And a lot of the agricultural products that we are producing is being exported. Only 5 to 10 percent of the food in Mississippi is being eaten in Mississippi? Is that right? Only 5 to 10 percent of the food being grown in Mississippi is eaten in Mississippi. That's correct. Um, So if you think about it and look at your own dinner plate or um, what's being served at the school cafeterias or at any restaurant you go to, for the majority of us, very little, if any of that, on our plate is coming from a local farm, let alone from a local farm who is also using organic or sustainable practices. That's an even smaller margin. So those are both numbers we're hoping to increase in the years to come, and we have seen a rise in that. Um, It's reflected in the number of farmers markets that are popping up around the state, number of young and beginning farmers that are getting into this and seeing it as a viable job opportunity. Um, And there is a niche that's available, and we're hoping to expand that niche in time so that the majority of Mississippians can be eating both local, healthy, fresh, and sustainably produced food. Um, We still got a long way to go, as those numbers indicate, but I think we're moving in the right direction for sure. Where is Mississippi food being exported? Where are growers sending their food? Oh, shoot. Well, if you look at uh, Mississippi agricultural products, the majority of it is in commodity crops, um, be it corn, soybean, rice, um, cotton, and a lot of those products are being shipped off to be manufactured, sometimes processed and then further sent down the chain back to Mississippi in the form of something that doesn't look like the soybean or the corn that it started as. But I think uh, what we're talking about is mostly fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, meat products, dairy, egg, things like that, that the majority of our diet comes from or should come from. And those are the things that you see or should see at farmers' markets and are seeing more of, but we still have a lot of room for growth there. And how does the food (laughs) get from the farm to the table? That 5 to 10 percent of of Mississippi grown food, how is it through uh, farmers markets or are there middlemen? How how exactly does it get from the farm to the dinner plate? There's a lot of different ways that, that the food that is grown in Mississippi gets to us. And it's taking a lot of really creative, entrepreneurial, small businesses that are popping up to be able to figure out those ways. So um, restaurants are starting to buy more local product, and we're seeing that on the menu. That's going to be featured uh, in our Taste of Mississippi dinner Friday night, which has a dozen chefs from around the state working with local farms. And these are some of the chefs in the farms that are collaborating already. We're just emphasizing what they're already doing. Uh, a lot of folks are going to the farmer's markets, not nearly enough, but it's happening, and it's starting to happen more and more in different communities where it hasn't previously. Um, some people are joining CSAs, community-supported agricultural farms. Um, in 2008, there was maybe one or two in the state. Now there's probably 20 or 30. Now and, talk about um, the community farms a little bit. How do they work? Sure. So community-supported agriculture is a subscription model, sort of like a magazine works. You pay an upfront cost, and then you get a return each month throughout the year or whatever the magazine subscription runs. It's the same way with vegetables on these CSA farms where you pay an upfront cost, and then you get delivered whatever is being grown by that farmer seasonally each week, either to your doorstep or at a central pickup location. And that's a way to make sure that you're eating not only fresh, healthy, and preferably sustainably grown food, depending on the farmer, but also stuff that's in season, which is hugely important. It's not enough that we eat tomatoes if it's the middle of the winter, tomatoes aren't being grown in Mississippi. 
Um, but when it's summertime, tomatoes are a little bit cheaper. They're abundant, and that's when we should be eating and also canning and putting up so we have that throughout the year. Is that on an individual basis, as you said, like a magazine subscription? So an individual subscribes to that farm providing the produce? Yeah, I don't want to paint it with one brush stroke. Every CSA farm is a little bit different, but the, the basic model um, usually fluctuates between individual shareholders and families um, or even half shares if you don't eat as much fruits and vegetables or a full share maybe if you're an individual who's a vegetarian and eats a lot of fruits and vegetables. So it definitely fluctuates between the farm and between the person that's um, buying into it. Do you know which areas or regions within the state uh, are least likely to have um, availability to fresh vegetables and fruits? Yeah, sure. And it doesn't come to any surprise, but the places that are struggling with the the most um, incidences of poverty throughout the state are the places that are also seeing the the least amount of fresh fruits and vegetables uh, in their diet. And this is something that's a huge concern, especially with diet-related diseases continuously on the rise throughout the state. Um, Dan Jones, who runs the new Center for Obesity Research in at UMMC is going to be talking about that on Friday during his noon panel at the summit. Um, but this is a big concern of ours. So it's not just enough to be getting food, fresh, healthy, sustainably produced food into 5 to 10% of our community members who can afford it, but to get it accessed by everyone throughout the state so that good food for all is something that we can uh, not only have once in a while, but have as a staple of our diet. Daniel Doyle is the executive director of the Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network. Daniel, thank you so much. Good information. Yes, ma'am. I appreciate it. Up next, exploring the music and culture of the Mojo Triangle in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Donald Trump has called climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese and has pledged to pull out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which is designed to reduce greenhouse gases. Now, more than 300 businesses are urging President-elect Trump to stick with the deal and move forward with investments in clean energy. The business case for action on climate change. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Today is Thursday, but you know what tomorrow is. It's Friday, and that means high school football. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tomorrow night at 10, right here on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Much of what is great about popular music in America can be traced to one place, the Mojo Triangle, covering much of Tennessee and Mississippi and including parts of Alabama as well as New Orleans. The Mojo Triangle birthed the blues, jazz, rock and roll, and much of country music. In her new book, Mojo Triangle Travel Guide, Marty Allen takes the reader on a journey through the history and geography while exploring this musical hotbed. We spoke with Allen and her publisher, James Dickerson, in today's book club. 
Well, I tried to make it interesting in terms of the history of music and where you can go and hear the jazz and the soul and the blues, rock and roll, that is so important to our history of music. Then I didn't want it to just be a travel brochure, uh, just where to go, where to eat, where to find music. So uh, I added a lot of stories, some interesting stories about people that grew up in this area. I tried to do bios about most any musician coming out of the Mojo Triangle and categorized it into certain chapters. Of course, there's New Orleans, Natchez, where music started with the Native Americans, then Muscle Shoals, which is so important, did a chapter on the Natchez Trace, which did not produce a lot of music but had such influence in the spiritual aspect of music and had and then some side trips from the Natchez Trace, uh, Jackson, Meridian, Philadelphia, Tupelo, and then Nashville, of course, and Memphis. James, not only are you the publisher of this book, but you have, as I understand, a very large music collection, which played a part in this book. Can you tell us about that? Oh, absolutely. I've probably got music archives that would equal any universities. Uh, and that's because I have written about music for 30 years. I owned a radio syndication, a blues and a country music syndication. We've got all these original interviews and a magazine, 901. It was the first uh, magazine from the South to ever get newsstand distribution all over the country. How many recordings would you say you have archived? Uh, oh, I couldn't even guess. Uh, most of my archives are photographs, uh, interviews. I got taped interviews with everybody you could imagine. And most of them done in the studio, so they're they're good quality. Mm-hmm. I will leave those to a university. And Marty, in doing research for this book, did you come across anything that surprised you, or maybe you could share a couple of specifics about what people will find in the book? Well, some of the stories are are really light, and you get to know people in a way that you wouldn't. I had no idea that Tanya Tucker knew Elvis, and uh, there's a little story about her being in the laundry where he was working, and he and uh, Scotty Moore were practicing upstairs, and uh, they pushed her around in laundry carts. And well, um, Go ahead. Yeah, actually, that was Tammy Wynette. Tammy, yeah. who did I say? Uh, Tanya, Tanya Tucker. Tucker. Yeah. Oh, well, she wishes. I was going to say, <laughs> so, she's a little younger. Yeah, a little yeah. younger. <laughs> Tammy, why not? Uh, but uh, Elvis told a lady in the in the place that uh, someday he would be able to wrap her in $100 bills and just things like that. And then Goo Goo Clusters uh, is in the book. It's a lighthearted story. And Were Goo- they born in Mississippi? Goo-goo no, Goo-goo that's Clusters? a Nashville thing. Ah. And uh, Goo Goo Clusters was the first time that they made candy out of several ingredients instead of just Hershey bars, you know, just the chocolate, but they added peanuts and caramel. And, and they actually <laughs> supported, and they were a sponsor of the Grand Ole Opry. Meriwether Lewis from Lewis and Clark died on the Natchez Trace, and so there's a story about that, and there's a lot of controversy over did he commit suicide, was he murdered? So I tried to add lots of things about if you travel in our area, some things that you would you would like to experience. Which is great to hear because, again, this is not 
what you expect in a travel guide. It's much more with stories, with complete stories and locations and photos. The music, as James said, that from his archives and, and photos as well. The book is called Mojo Triangle Travel Guide. Memphis, Tupelo, Nashville, Natchez, Mississippi Delta, Muscle Shoals, Jackson, New Orleans. They're all included in there. The author is Marty Allen, and the publisher and the the one with all the music in the archives is James Dickinson. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow on Mississippi Edition, staying smart and healthy this flu season, we'll have a conversation with state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers. But it is a reminder for us that flu is out there. And for those folks who haven't gotten their flu shots yet, they need to go ahead and do so. What is the time period for flu season? Typically in Mississippi, it can start as early as October, and then it can extend into March and April, and sometimes as long as May. That's tomorrow on the show. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Radio's local programs are available now as podcasts. Sure, you love your MPB mobile app. Streams your favorite program anytime you like. But when streaming's not the thing, say, in flight or driving on the Natchez Trace, download your favorite podcast and you've got it in your pocket. Available on iTunes or on any podcast app. Grab your local MPB podcast now. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio.